Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to our penultimate episode of Sheep Thrills for Season 4. Um, if you can believe it, we're already basically charging into December. Final season has begun, etc., etc. We're We're really in it now, folks. Um, so yes, yeah, so we have this episode. Next week will be our last episode of the season, so make sure to tune in for a great finale episode. We're going to be talking about, you know, where we've been, where we're going, the usual stuff. And then we're also going to have another edition of the much lauded Scandal or Scamdal dropping next week with some familiar faces slash voices. Um, so if you've got nothing to look forward to, at least you've got a new edition of Scandal or Scamdal to, to tide you over through finals. But today we are going to be talking about couple things, big things. We're going to talk first about the politics of the World Cup, something that a lot of people are focusing on right now. Uh, we are talking about the COVID protests happening throughout China right now. Uh, and then we're also going to be talking about some congressional updates during the lame duck session, talk about some legislation that they're working on pushing through, as well as some changes in leadership that we may be seeing coming down the pike. Um, so busy show. So with that being said, we're going to jump right into it. First of all, the World Cup. So let me preface this by saying I would never claim to be an expert on any sports. I watch sports because I like that it looks like everyone on the team is friends. Um, and like that's my main interest is in the found family trope. But regardless, the only sport that I would ever claim to be an expert in is GW basketball. And I think that soccer in itself is kind of boring and the game is too long and the field is too big. But the rest of the world seems to like it a lot. So we are going to talk about it. Um, the right. So the entire world is paying attention to the World Cup right now that's happening in Qatar. Um, and there have been a lot of controversies leading up to the World Cup. And then there have been a lot of controversies as the World Cup has been happening in the past week. And of course, you might think, oh, sports, that has nothing to do with politics wrong. It has everything to do with politics. Um, and especially these like big international stages have so much to do with politics, with international development, with international relations. Um, and so it's super important that we talk about how all of these different things kind of kind of fit into our to our international narrative and and the, and the global community and everything. So I'm going to talk about all that. So again, a lot of controversies leading up to the World Cup and the decision to host this World Cup, which I kind of have to assume was supposed to be over the COVID years, um, but then wasn't because of COVID. I assume. I truly don't know. Um, that decision was made all the way back in 2010. And there were a lot of controversies when that decision was made in 2010. And so we've had, you know, more than a decade since the decision was made with people saying, hey, a lot's going to go down here. This is not going to be quite great. Um, so we kind of knew that a lot of drama was, was coming down the pike. Um, so there was evidence back in 2010 and like a lot of different hearings and, and investigations um, that Qatari officials were bribing FIFA officials so that their bid could win. Um, the, a FIFA investigation, which I assume was like an internal investigation, cleared everybody of any wrongdoing, but yeah, I like I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's really necessarily the most unbiased of um, investigations there, but 
who am am I to say? So anyway, back in 2014, they did clear all these officials of wrongdoing, but then the FIFA president at the time uh, resigned in, I think, 2015 because of a different bribing scandal. So we do know that bribing is kind of a part of the international soccer culture. Um, So, you know, there there may be things that have gone on in that sense. Um, and then, of course, there was also a evidence way, way back in 2010 when this decision was made um, that Qatar has a long history of human rights abuses. So we knew that that was going to be an issue throughout. And then there's also straight up the logistical challenges of running a international competition in a tiny country that has 100 plus degree summers. Um, so, you know, there's an overall lack of infrastructure. Um, in order to be able to run all of these different games at the same time. Like, you need to have multiple huge stadiums, you need to have enough facilities to host the teams, to host fans, to feed fans, like, the whole bit. Um, And they just really did not have that infrastructure when they won their bid in 2010. Um, And the whole country is 30% smaller than Connecticut. And Connecticut only has five congressional districts. So it's a very small country, not a lot of like land mass, not a huge population, which means that they had to address that. Um, they needed more laborers in order to build the infrastructure that they needed, um, which obviously caused a lot of issues that we're going to talk about. Um, also, the fact that there are 100 plus degree summers, even though they said that they were going to play all of the games at air-conditioned um, stadiums, they ended up actually moving the World Cup to November as you can see, um, because of of those weather issues, uh, which causes like a whole bunch of other issues with the soccer schedule in Europe. I don't really know. I didn't look that much into it because, again, I don't really know much about soccer and I'm not going to claim to. Um, But anyway, there's a whole bunch of issues with that for the players and the fact that players are now at an increased risk of injury because of the schedule and because of like all the different conditions that they're currently experiencing. So that was like the setup. Back in 2010, that is what people were saying. Here are all of the issues that are going to come up with hosting the World Cup in Qatar. And everyone was like, it'll be fine. It'll be totally okay. And, um, it, you know, it's not. It's, the infrastructure is there. They, they solved that problem. There is physically buildings with which to host these games. There are places that people are living the infrastructure is there, they did it. Um, but the way that they solved that issue maybe made other issues worse. Um, so because, again, they have such a small population and they have a very small population of laborers and clearly not enough laborers to be able to kind of invest that amount of time into into labor, they had to turn to migrant workers that currently make up 90% of the labor force. So they basically imported tons and tons and tons of workers uh, just to build these stadiums. Um, And then since they started that work in 2010, it's reported that more than 6,500 migrant workers have died from workplace accidents, car crashes, suicides, and deaths from other causes, including the heat. Um, So FIFA and Qatari officials dispute the actual number of deaths, and they claim that only a few happened as like a direct result of construction on facilities, which like, I, I mean, yeah, th- those are those are the those are the deaths that were like literally like you know whatever something got dropped on you know 
physically they were building the facility and then something went wrong and the person and the person died. But like all of these other things can be kind of related to it, um, especially if they were working, you know, working on the facilities in the first place. So anyway, they, you know, they're, they're trying to downplay all of this as much as possible because 6,500 migrant worker deaths for a soccer tournament is not really a great look for anyone. Um, but they on, and then they only implemented workers' welfare standards in 2014. Um, so they had three or four years of really, really bad workplace conditions before they were even able to implement any kind of standards um, in 2014. And I'm not sure what the like how that actually affected everything. I'm not sure if, if things got better after these standards were implemented, um, but it certainly doesn't appear so, kind of just based solely on the number of, of workers that passed away. But And again, because um, FIFA and Qatari officials aren't really keeping super great track of, of all of the all of the different deaths and injuries that have happened throughout the construction of the facilities, it's likely that we don't really have like a really good solid set of data with which to understand how everything happened. Um, and then there's also a coalition of human rights groups that are pushing FIFA and Qatar to create a remedy pool to compensate workers and the families of workers who died, um, which is probably not going to happen because it's like reparations. Um, it basically be admitting wrongdoing, which is not something that I think either body wants to be doing. They don't want to admit that they really did anything wrong uh, with this pool of migrant workers, even though they, they pretty clearly did. And, you know, it's just, it's an exploitation of an already extremely vulnerable population. And it also begs the question, you brought in all of these migrant workers, you had this very specific job for them, they were going to build all these facilities, they were there for, you know, 10 years, maybe, um, more, less, less, whatever, building these facilities. Now that the games are, you know, now that the competition is over, after the World Cup is over, what are you planning on doing with all these people? You know, now that they have this one source of income and that source of income is going to be gone, they've probably built a life in around and in and around Qatar. What is like, the, what's the thought process? What's going to happen to this big pool of people now that they no longer have that opportunity? Um, and I wonder if that is something that Qatari officials have thought about at all, um, or if it's just going to be like, all right, great, thanks for your help, see you later. Um, who knows? And I think that that'll probably cause another big controversy again of, you know, this pool of workers that has been so poorly treated throughout the process. Now, you know, are they going to be given pathways to citizenship in Qatar? Are they going to be, you know, given resources or like, you know, different refugee statuses or are, are Qatari officials going to help them kind of find new places to go outside of Qatar? You know, what like what's actually going to happen here with that huge labor population? And again, now that there's not that same demand for that kind of hard labor, how are they going to make sure that these this big group of people are, are employed? I don't know. That's a pretty tough question. Um, and I don't know if it's something that has been addressed. I didn't see anything about it in my research, but it's entirely possible. Um, but, it, you know, it's a very different thing of like, you know, many different countries use migrant workforces with which to kind of do this kind of massive levels of manual labor in short amounts of time. Um, but I don't know if it's ever been the case where, you know, now, like, like I said, the, 
The mig these migrant workers make up 90% of the labor force in Qatar. That's a massive amount of people. Um, especially because the country is so small, the population is so small, they had to import so many people. Um, it's, a, it's a very different scale um, than, than other countries that have done something similar. So anyway, that, that's kind of one big chunk and big bucket of conversation that has been happening. Um, especially there was a graphic that was going around that kind of showed the, the number of individual deaths um, building like these international stadiums. And it's like one or two people died building the Olympics facilities in London. One or two people died in Beijing building the Olympic stadiums there. Uh, and then you get down to Qatar World Cup and it is just rows and rows of people. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's the exploitation of an extremely vulnerable population socially, politically, economically, physically, all of the things, just kind of exploitation across the board. So um, again, just one very, very significant thing that a lot of people have been talking about um, that probably won't go away for a long time. I, I see there being a lot of kind of investigations and inquiries happening around how everything happened after the World Cup is over. Um, and then the other big chunk of conversation that's been happening, um, again, this was a concern that was had when Qatar was chosen as the World Cup site, um, and then kind of continued, obviously, into the actual World Cup games, um, is that there, Qatar is known for, not known for, but has had a history of human rights abuses. Um, so... Qatari Penal Code criminalizes sex outside of marriage, which has led to the prosecution of rape victims. Um, and I did read this story very briefly, and I'm not sure if it's real, um, but I'm, I saw a story about a um, World Cup official um, who was sexually assaulted and is now being held. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's true. I'm not sure what the, what the actual case is there, but it's still just a you know, difficult thing, like, you know, whatever, everyone, Western perspective, blah, blah, blah. Um, don't prosecute rape victims, prosecute the perpetrators of rape, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Okay, anyway. And then, of course, this other big chunk of things that's been widely talked about um, is that homosexuality is criminalized in Qatar. Um, they've described homosexuality as damage in the mind. Um, Gay people in Qatar are subject to conversion therapy. They're harassed by officials. It's just, it is not a, a healthy or safe place to be gay. Um, and then, of course, when you're inviting the world community into your country and you're saying, yep, you guys can all come, but you just have to respect our rules. And our rules are you cannot be who you are. That That's a tough pill to swallow. Um, and, and I feel like there's, you know, there's a line between respecting other countries' cultures and not allowing a person to be who they are. Um, there's, a, there's a very stark division between those two things. There's a difference between going to a conservative country and them asking you, like asking women to cover their heads. Fine, okay. But then saying, no, don't be yourself, don't have your identity, like, because we believe that your identity is wrong and if you come here we're going to criminalize you for that that's not a great thing and it's also not a great place to be inviting the world community um to kind of kind of center this kind of place where your 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 identities are being criminalized but anyway 
so again, those are the those are the two big buckets. Not that the migrant abuse isn't a human rights issue, but it's just kind of one big human rights issue and then a couple I guess smaller human rights issues. I doubt that Qatari officials are actually going to like arrest anybody for for being gay. Um just cuz I think that they know that they kind of won't survive the backlash there, but they certainly did threaten it. Um kind of throughout the the weeks leading up to the World Cup, they were saying like no, you like you can't be gay. You can't do all of these things um, while you're here because that's that's not you know respectful to our culture or whatever. You have to respect our rules while you're in inside of Qatar. Um, so I haven't heard anything about you know gay couples getting arrested, but I'm not sure like what the what like the risk tolerance is for for gay people who are going to the World Cup. So who knows? So kind of moving on from that, there's been a lot of conversation about politics at the actual cup um so first of all a lot of people have been barred from bringing rainbow paraphernalia into stadiums some people have been held for a little while but then let go kind of with with no issues um but that has been kind of a topic of conversation of like how how much can we how much can we get away with being openly pro-gay but kind of not saying it um, and so that's kind of been, again, kind of like conversation about risk tolerance. There's been definitely a bunch of people who are trying to toe that line. Um, and then also kind of focusing, there's been, you know, there's a lot of different politics playing out in, in different countries that have kind of made their own appearance um, during the World Cup. So I talked a couple weeks ago about um, the protests happening in Iran. Um, and of course, there's a lot of pressure right now against the government um, because of a whole myriad of things and, and you know, kind of pushing back against the government and, and their decision making. Um, and so in their first game against Wales, maybe? I don't know. Um, the team did not sing the national anthem um, and basically, you know, did not did not support the did not support the country. Um, and so after that game, apparently they were all spoken to by Iranian officials and they were threatened with, you know, their own death, their own injury, their family's injury, their family's death, if they didn't quote unquote behave in uh, their next game against the U.S., which happened yesterday. Um, and so during that game, they did sing their anthem, etc. cetera. Um, and then ultimately they did lose to the U.S., but you know, there was definitely kind of a lot of pressure on them to to change their behavior between their first game and their second game, um, which is, you know, really stressful and really interesting. And it was interesting to see the the team kind of take a position on on these issues because, you know, not singing the national anthem, it like seems like a small thing, but it's it's not. And we see that in the United States, too, you know, athletes who choose to kind of make a political statement by their engagement with the national anthem, with the flag, whatever, um, is a very significant political move, especially on an international stage the size of the World Cup. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation as well about um, different people who have been protesting in the stands and have been, uh, you know, holding protest signs and flags um, and kind of like altercations between pro and anti-governmental groups. Um, who are there to support Iran. So there's been a lot of conversation there um, about how 
a lot of those protesters are being are having their signs taken. They're being penalized in some way or another um, for their protest of the Iranian government. And there was also conversation in the lead up to the World Cup about whether or not Iran should be invited to play. And of course, that's a difficult question because on one hand, yes, you don't want to be rewarding the Iranian government. You don't want to be kind of promoting if, you know, if they did win the World Cup, you don't want to be promoting the country. You don't want to be giving them kind of any kind of benefits, anything that could kind of assist them in their in their kind of nationalistic, nationalistic pro-government push. Um, but at the same time, you know, bringing everyone onto the world stage is the point of things like this. Um, and so to, to not include one team because of their government, um, it, it, it's a difficult line to draw and it's a difficult line to toe because, you know, if you, wh- where, where, do you, where do you draw the line if you're not going to be including um, one particular team? Anyway. So then, of course, you know, the politics of sports is very, very interesting. And to, you know, people who, you know, who say, you know, shut up and dribble, whatever. Um, if, like, around, you know, especially in the U.S., the national anthem and everything, people, stu- pol- ugh, ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, athletes who are trying to make a political statement are often told, no, don't. Like, you're just supposed to play sport. This has nothing to do with politics. But, of course, it always does have to do with politics because everything has to do with politics. Um, and so we were having a very similar conversation during the Beijing Olympics um, around this kind of idea that that these global sporting events are supposed to kind of foster this international community. But at what point are we working to foster a global community at the expense of the less fortunate, right? It's supposed to be a positive thing for the world order. That's kind of why the modern Olympics exist in the way they do. It's kind of a way for everyone to kind of put aside their differences, have a good-natured competition, um, and and kind of have there be interactions from different t- sides of the world, have, have and have everybody be focusing on one big thing. Um, but if this is supposed to be a positive thing for the world order, it begs the question: Is this a what what world order is this a positive thing for? And if we're letting countries like Qatar be rewarded basically for their human rights abuses, what's the point of having a competition like this? Um, what kind of world order, if this is supposed to be an improvement of the world order, what world order are we trying to create? Is this a world order that protects the elites or one that protects migrants, that protects gay people, that protects the less fortunate? Um, and, you know, I think that there's a pretty stark division that, like, obviously the elites are looking, the elites are the ones making the decisions and they're looking to continue to reward themselves and reinforce their own rewards. And they're not really looking to help the less fortunate. Um, and so it's just interesting to see those those kinds of cycles continue to kind of perpetuate themselves over and over again. And then on the other hand, there's also this growing ideology that sports are for everyone. There's There's kind of the idea that sports are only for straight white men is kind of no longer a commonly held ideology. The amount of people that watch sports is very, you know, is growing, growing, growing in diversity. Um, More women are watching sports, more people of color are watching sports. Like sports is for a diverse audience. And that's something that a lot of different 
national level sports, whatever, have been trying to promote. Um, like you even see in the NHL that there have been a lot of moves being made to stop fans and stop players from being homophobic and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the NHL is like pretty white. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, you know, if there's any sport that is for the straight white man, it's hockey. Um, but again, you see the hockey community becoming so much more diverse. And so the NHL is recognizing, oh, okay, well, we can't then continue to do kind of exactly what we're doing with our promotion, with this, that, the other thing, because our audience isn't going to respond to that anymore because our audience is more diverse. So now all of these sports are saying, yes, we're for everyone. We are for diversity. We are for diversity in our audiences. We're for diversity in our players. We're for diversity in our staffs and our administrators. But then you're going to claim to be for everyone but then kind of do something like the World Cup on the international stage and you're broadcasting that, oh, it's for everyone as long as you're not a migrant or gay or this, that, the other thing. It's, it's pretty tough to kind of balance those two things and I, I think that there's a pretty big misstep happening there with FIFA making that decision and, and, and trying to attract a wider audience and a more diverse audience um, while at once kind of rewarding people who are, you know, committing widespread human rights abuses. So, that's that. I don't think I'm going to be invited to Qatar anytime soon. Anyway, my last thought on that is go USA. I don't know anything about men's soccer. I don't care about men's soccer, but, you know, I hope that the US wins. I'm happy for them. I'm excited for them. Go soccer. Okay. Moving on. Um, China. Okay, so China has been attempting a zero COVID policy um, basically throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, which is basically means that every time cases pop up, every time there's any kind of outbreak, they basically shut down that entire region. Um, and everyone is forced to isolate, quarantine, test, um, and it's like a very severe lockdown. Um, kind of there's always a joke in in the U.S. where people were saying, oh, well, we don't want any more lockdowns, blah, blah, blah. We, we never really had a lockdown. They just suggested to us that we stay at home, but like we never had as severe of a lockdown um, as China had has had throughout the pandemic. Um, and of course, they've been using this policy for a very long time since basically the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so again, they're just they're attempting to eradicate COVID altogether because the thought is, oh, one case pops up, we lock it down, we get rid of that case, and then it's going to go away. But they've been doing it for two and a half years, and it's clearly not working. Look, it and it, and it certainly seems to look like eradicating COVID altogether does not seem to be possible. Um, and it's not something that's actually ever going to work. So, anyway, um, so this is kind of this is what what China's doing is the alternative of what the rest of the world, particularly I think the Western world, is doing, where we're just basically trying to live with COVID as it stands. We're going to get the vaccine. We're going to get the boosters. We're going to mask in situations where we need to mask. But in general, we're just assuming that COVID is a part of our lives and we kind of are not going to be able to get rid of it altogether. So these are kind of like the two different 
the two different global strategies at this point around dealing with COVID. Um, and of course, this zero COVID policy has had um, widespread negative impacts on the economy, on travel, on everyday life. Um, there have been widespread shortages of food and other daily necessities. Um, and of course, kind of the lack of foot traffic throughout China has really affected a lot of small businesses that now are kind of unable to operate. Um, so the economy kind of is not doing as well um, as it maybe could be doing um, just because everyone is kind of isolated and locked in their own homes. Um, and of course, this zero code policy is, is basically a completely arbitrary process. So you're in quarantine, the, so there's a quote from the New York Times, you're in quarantine until they decide you're not. And when I was reading about this, I think what's, what's very interesting is like, it's in theory, it's a fine policy. Someone gets COVID, isolate them for a couple weeks, they don't have COVID anymore, they don't infect anybody else, you let them go, it's fine. But then you think about the fact that the George Washington University had isolation policies for the first two years of the pandemic, and it, they were unable to do it at all. And GW is like a relatively small school, and they were basically incapable of um, operating any kind of COVID isolation policies. They put people in rooms with no resources at all. There was no way for them to get tested. So then they had to, like, there was just, there was, GW was unable to operate an isolation policy that was a, a micro version of the zero COVID policy. And then you blow that up to a country the size of China trying to do what GW failed to do. Um, and it just, you can kind of tell that it doesn't quite make sense. Um, it's not really the, the, the greatest policy just because it's very, very hard to do. It's extremely hard to track people. Um, it's extremely hard to get them access to the resources that they need while they're in isolation. Um, and like at GW, you know, you're not you're not locked in a room. In in China, you are a little bit more, but um, it's just interesting. Interesting that like kind of micro micro comparison. I'm not saying that GW is comparable to China. It's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that this very like micro case of how different universities are trying to deal with COVID towards the beginning. And mostly they gave up on it. You know, now the, the GW COVID policy is if you get COVID, like stay in your room for a little bit, but also if you want to go to class, like we're not going to stop you. Um, and so there's not even like isolation dorms anymore. Um, they're just, it just kind of, they're saying, all right, it is what it is. So it is, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to look at, look at colleges as kind of a, um, you know, reflective of a microscopic version of the rest of the world. Anyway, okay, so basically because of zero COVID, because of the arbitrary nature of the policy, because people have been kind of locked in their, locked in their rooms for so many years, so many months, there have been widespread protests happening throughout China. Um, so basically there, it's just been in regards to these forced lockdowns and they're, they've been calling this rare case of nationwide civil unrest kind of post Tiananmen Square, which we all know about, don't have to talk about. Um, some have been going to, going as far as to call for the end of the Chinese Communist Party, calling for leadership to step down. Um, just basically saying, 
you know, you can't basically keep us locked up anymore. We need to move on with our lives. The economy is suffering. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough resources. Um, and you're not helping us. So that has been kind of what's been happening for the past several weeks, kind of these, again, these wide scale protests. Um, and again, like China's approach was was celebrated, celebrated in the beginning of COVID when it looked like we could actually get rid of COVID by participating in lockdowns. Um, but that's clearly not the case anymore. And China has not moved on in the same way the rest of the world has. And it certainly, it doesn't really look like they're planning on it. Um, it kind of appears that China is going to continue to double down on what they what their policies are currently and they're not going to kind of bend to bend to protesters or bend to the economy et cetera et cetera um and one kind of big impetus for this this kind of level of protest um was that there was a big fire in china's far west region which resulted in 10 people dying in an apartment fire um, where people were being quarantined and it's thought that the quarantine measures so barricaded doors um, all that kind of stuff stopped individuals from being able to escape the fire. Um, so basically they were saying you have these severe COVID policies, these severe measures, and it's, they're, they're, they're for people's safety and well-being, and actually they're worse for people's well-being. They're not actually, they're, they're, they're hurting people more than they're helping people. Look at all of these people that died because of because of the COVID policy as it exists. Um, so that was kind of a big impetus for the level of protests that we're currently seeing. Um, and so, you know, the, there's, there's a big question of, is the pushback against zero COVID going to result in a larger pushback against the CCP? Um, and again, is this going to cause any kind of major shift in governmental policy in China? And of course, we can. We talked about the same kind of thing when we were talking about the protests in Iran. Um, are things going to change significantly because of these levels of protest? And who knows? You know, I think that we 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 hope always that these kinds of protests cause some kind of long-term change. It usually doesn't, but it might kind of. You know, it's showing the world that there is a, a pretty high level of. Um, unhappiness in those places and um you know so it's 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 important to see all of that happening and then of course like watching those things continue maybe it will escalate to the point where um different leaders are, are forced to step down or forced to kind of change their views or change their leadership style um you know and again i think this is a, it's it's interesting that both these protests in China and these protests in Iran that are completely focused on different issues but kind of similar similar basis are happening at the same time, especially while we're all looking at the international stage. We're all paying attention to the global community because of the World Cup. So all of these things are kind of coming together at the same time that there's kind of maybe more attention on the protests in Iran. There's more attention on the protests in China because we're all looking at the global stage. We're all trying to understand our places on this, on, in, in kind of the world, on, the, on, the global, on this global platform. Um, so I just think that's kind of an interesting, interesting time, interesting way to view everything that's going on in terms of kind of the civil unrest that's happening across the world.
But that is all I wanted to say on that. We are now going to move on to some domestic issues. Woohoo! Um, we are going to talk about some congressional updates. We've got some big updates to talk about, especially because I did not have an episode last week because of Thanksgiving. So we're kind of covering two weeks in one with congressional updates here. So first of all, uh, Nancy Pelosi has announced that she is retiring from being the Democratic leader in Congress. Um, Two weeks ago, she announced that she's officially stepping down um, as head of the party. She's still keeping her um, San Francisco seat. So she's still going to be basically a rank and file member of Congress, um, but she's taking a step back from leadership. Um, I, you know, she's probably not going to take that far of a step back, um, especially as these new people are trying to transition in to, um, into their positions. Um, but regardless, she is no longer going to be Speaker of the House. She is no longer going to be, um, Democratic leader, minority leader in any way. So, Um, Steny Hoyer, who is currently the majority leader, is also taking a step back from leadership. Um, but, um, Jim Clyburn is going to stay on kind of an emeritus position. So, uh, this is really an end of an era with congressional politics. Um, Pelosi has been a very good leader. Again, regardless of what you think about her politics, um, she is really good at being Speaker of the House. She's a really good um, party leader. And so it's going to be interesting to see how anyone can really follow in her footsteps. Um, I think, you know, you especially think about all of the different stories that have come out over the years about how good Nancy Pelosi is at whipping votes and, and like really getting in really get, getting in deep with, with different people um, and, and trying to figure out exactly what the best way is to kind of crack someone um, to, to vote for a particular policy. Um, so again, it's just going to be en- interesting to see if there's going to be any potential new leader that's going to have the same kind of whipping capabilities that Nancy Pelosi has. Also, her fundraising abilities. She raises millions and millions of dollars for the Democrats every cycle. Um, She's consistently the number one earner for the Democrats by, like, tons and tons of money. Um, So, again, there's just big, big shoes to fill. Um, She oversaw a lot during her time in office, and she was just really good at at keeping that coalition together and keeping that caucus together. Um, So it's, it's, you know, again, it's certainly the end of an era. And I cried a little bit while watching her speech um, just because she's, she's an icon. She's a legend. Doesn't matter what you think about her politics. She is a legend. She is the moment. Um, And so it's, it's, you know, very, it's gonna be very interesting to see, you know, she's the only democratic leader I've ever really known. because I think, when did she become Democratic leader? I think, like, literally 2001. When did Pelosi become leader? Yep, so she was, well, she was, her first term as speaker was 2007. So again, like, she's she's the only, she's the only Democratic leader I've ever consciously known. Um, and so it's going to be really weird to, to watch politics happen without her at the helm. 
Um, but the new leadership team that is beginning to emerge, um, there's not really a lot of infighting that's happening with this with this new leadership transition. It kind of seems like this has been in the works for a long time, kind of happening behind the scenes. They've been building these relationships and and doing what they need to do to kind of lay the groundwork, lay the lay the groundwork. Oh, I mixed groundwork and foundation, um, in order to make sure that they kind of had that institutional support when they started their upwards rise. Um, but Hakeem Jeffries, who is the current House Democratic Caucus chair, is likely going to become the minority leader. Um, Catherine Clark, is, who is currently the assistant speaker, is looking to be um, minority whip. Um, and Pete Aguilar of California is running for caucus chair, which is Hakeem Jeffries' current position. Um, and then Clyburn is going to try to stay on as assistant leader, um, but he's kind of stated that it's going to be more of an, like an emeritus position um, than anything else. None of these people are looking to face any opposition again. It, the, the Dems are in array. Woo hoo. And again, like it looks like they've been preparing for these positions for a while. They've been working on building those relationships, doing that kind of fundraising work, and just trying to kind of set themselves up as kind of the heir apparents. Um, and it looks like they've been doing this work for, for a pretty long time together, um, kind of when when Nancy Pelosi was, was ready to kind of lay down the gavel and pass it along to the next person. Um, and people seem to like Hakeem Jeffries. They seem to think that he's a good, important leader and he does a lot of listening and not a lot of talking, which is always good. Um, but good Lord, those are some big shoes to fill. I am not envious of him. He has... Um, he has a lot. He has a lot of things to, 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 to cover here. So we're hoping for him. We're hoping for the best, but we'll see. We'll see how that all goes. Okay. Second of all, we want to talk about the marriage bill that just passed in the Senate, the marriage equality bill. So the Senate passed a bill yesterday that enshrines same-sex marriage protections into federal law. So if you'll remember the Dobbs decision, basically opens the door for the which was the abortion decision basically opens the door for um uh the supreme court now to go back and kind of repeal all of those different um decisions that have been passed through through the privacy provision that they now decided no longer exists Uh, and part of those things are same-sex marriage and interracial marriage um, so now there is a federal protection. We're no longer reliant on the Supreme Court for these protections of same-sex marriage and interracial marriage. Um, the bill also repealed the Defense of Marriage Act, which, like officially, which gave a, like a legally official um, def- definition of marriage as between a man and a woman, um, which I'm so surprised passed with an overwhelming majority in 1996, which seems like crazy late. For, for, for a bill like that to be passing. But I'm sure it was in response to some nonsense. I don't know. Whatever. It's gone now. It's been repealed. Anyway. Um, and then it also included significant provisions for religious liberty. Um, and what I see to be like the only real impact of that is that it clarifies that nonprofit religious groups are not going to like have their tax treatment changed. Um, and they're not going to have to perform marriage services. So, oh, that was a terrible sound. I'm so sorry. Um, basically just says, you know, you're not going to lose your tax-exempt status if you refuse to perform a same-sex marriage. All right. Whatever. Um, 
And then, of course, this bill passed with all 50 Democrats and 12 Republicans, including Susan Collins of Maine, Rob Portman of Ohio, and Tom Tillis of North Carolina. Notably, McConnell did not vote for it, even though he is in an interracial relationship, but whatever. Um, anyway, so it's just an interesting, this kind of an interesting, um, goes to show how kind of Congress can be a counterbalance to um, the Supreme Court. You know, we always think about the Supreme Court as a balance on Congress, but it's interesting that can also work the same way, especially because, you know, the balance of the court is not going to change significantly um, for the next several decades. So it's it shows how important holding control of Congress is that now we can kind of provide a check to some of the decisions that are coming out of that body. This bill is going to pass the House easily. Nice lame duck bill to push through. Republicans um, support the, there's like 50 Republicans that support the bill. Um, so it is not really a concern that this bill is not going to pass. And it'll probably be taken up uh, this week or next week by the House, which is very exciting. Okay, I think this is, yeah. Mm, oh my gosh, so many things to talk about that we're not going to get to. That's fine. So one other thing we want to talk about is that um, Biden had a meeting with Pelosi, Schumer, McConnell, and McCarthy to talk about legislative priorities during the lame duck session. Um, so, yeah, again, met with all these leaders, discussed legislative priorities. The top priority right now, which we don't have time to get super into, but we'll probably talk about more next week, um, is averting a railroad strike um, that is kind of in the in the works right now. Um, they are trying to pass a congressional resolution to enforce a contract, contract deal brokered between the White House and union bosses, but rejected by the workers. Um, the one big sticking point they have right now is paid sick leave. Um, and the, like the railroads will like refuse to accept it. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Hopefully there's not a strike. Obviously that would be a really big issue during the holiday season, um, would probably affect inflation a lot again, um, so on and so forth. But they're really trying to come up with a plan that um, attracts employees as well as employers, but we shall see how that all works out. Um, and then, of course, they're also working on discussing federal funding. Uh, the current deadline is December 16th, um, which is, you know, it's a really complicated thing right now. Of course, the Republicans were hoping to have a big enough majority to push everything to January and then would get whatever they want. Um, but that is really no longer the case. Um, and of course, the Democrats are kind of trying to figure out whatever legislative loopholes they can do in order to get whatever they want pushed through and kind of preserve their bills um, as much as as much as they possibly can as they go into um, as they go into the the, the new session. Um, and of course, the bills that they have right now are very, are very, very, very much larger than what the Republicans really want from them. Um, so that's definitely going to be a, a point of contention between the two bodies there. So, okay, last but not least, I'm going to talk about the Georgia runoff for one second. Um, so as we know, the Georgia runoff is next week, next Tuesday. Early voting has already started and it's looking like pretty big numbers. Um, it's not really looking like Republicans are getting what they need just based off of what we know about early vote turnout and everything else. Um, and again, it's probably going to be, I mean, whatever. What do I know? What do I know? Nothing. 
but it's looking like it's going to be kind of suppressed Republican turnout because of the outcome from the midterms, because the Trump announcement is kind of freaking out the Republican world. Um, and there's even been stories about Herschel Walker kind of telling Trump to, to pack it in um, because his endorsement is not going to be a help to him right now, and he knows it. And the interesting thing right now um, is that the outcome of the runoff is going to be the first real litmus test of what the Trump announcement is going to mean for 2024. Um, and basically the entire Republican world, I mean, there's certainly factions of it that are very pro-Trump, um, but it's really looking very anti-Trump right now. Um, it is not it is not looking like the kind of Republican infrastructure is really going to be supporting the, 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 the former president that much. And they're really looking for ways to kind of push him out of the process as much as possible because they know that a, a Republican primary with Donald Trump in the mix would be a mess for the party. It would cause so much division within the party. And then they also know that you know, Trump getting angry and running as a third party will split the vote and the Democrats will win and like that'll be that. Um, so I think that they're aware of all of these different outcomes that are going to come from Trump kind of throwing his hat in the ring. Um, but we also and, and they know that none of those outcomes are really going to be good ones. So they're definitely paying a lot of attention to it and they're trying to figure out how to force Trump out in the nicest way possible without really getting on his bad side because he is, in fact, kind of scary. All right. But that is all I want to talk about today. Before we go, we're going to go back to our first story of the day, and we are going to talk about the World Cup. And we are going to talk about FIFA's president, um, Infantino. Uh, he made a statement a couple about a week and a half ago, and it's really funny. And we are going to listen to it, and it made me laugh. And maybe it'll make you laugh. I'm not sure, but... Anyway, I'm going to, I'm just going to let you, in, in light of everything that I talked about in the beginning of this episode, I am going to just play this for you. Let me know what you think. Is it funny? Is it depressing? Let's find out. Okay. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. Anyway. Sorry for that ad that started playing right at the end of that, but what is he talking about? It's just, it's just so funny. Anyway, goes to show that the nonsense that happens in U.S. politics happens everywhere. Everyone loves being symbolic. They love it. But with all that being said, that is all I want to talk about today. Thank you guys so much for listening. It was a delightful time being with you today. One more episode next week. It's going to be a banger. Scandal or scandal. There's so much to discuss. I've been saving all of these scandals for, for months now. So it's going to be great. Um, so yeah, next week, do a little bit of a wrap up. Talk about a couple big things. Do scandal or scandal. Try to fit as much as I can into one hour. 
um, and then off for, for a month or so for everyone to kind of ignore the world and, and stick their heads under their pillows. So I look forward to hearing from you all next week. I hope you guys all have a great week. You're doing well with finals and I will talk to y'all later.